Now, let's get back to our Bible study. We're in Matthew chapter 26. Here's our setting of what we're doing. We are on that Tuesday of Jesus' last week of ministry. We've talked about this being his busy day. He traveled from Bethany to Jerusalem. He gets there in Jerusalem, and then what happens during the course of that day is um, he's teaching on the way about that cursed fig tree. He gives multiple uh, conflicts and challenges and opposition from the rulers. He answers their questions about taxes and marriage and those types of things. He takes time somewhere in that day. He's watching how people are worshiping and being involved with the uh, Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Passover, which are back-to-back -back feasts that run together during that time period. Uh, and then as he's leaving, he mourns over the city, and then he gives what is called the Olivet Discourse, one of the longest, next to the Sermon on the Mount of his sermonic teachings and in fact, it's prophetic. And then he travels back to Bethany. There's two different views. He goes back to Bethany for the night and for the next day, or he goes to the Mount of Olives and rests there, and that becomes his nighttime stay. We really don't know which one it is uh, for sure, but it's one of those two. Now, the Olivet Discourse we've been talking about, it's Matthew 24, Matthew 25, going into Matthew 26, is uh, <clears throat> what he's teaching about in this section is the disciples looked at Jerusalem. They said, it's beautiful, it's great. And he says, well, it's going to be destroyed. And they said, well, if it's going to be destroyed, then your kingdom must be coming. And he says, well, before my kingdom comes, and he gives a chronological idea of what's going to happen. There's going to be the tribulation, the return of Jesus Christ. There's going to be the regathering of the Jews. And in light of all that, he says, you've got to be ready. <clears throat> and he has an extended portion that we call the exhortations or the challenges to watch, to know this is going to happen. Really be confident in it and watch. Be wise. And he starts giving stories, illustrations, like in the day of Noah. They weren't prepared. Or he says you're going to be busy grinding or working in the field. One will be taken, the other one left. And then he gives another one. He says it's going to be like my coming's like a thief in the night. That it's going to come and you should be ready because thieves don't announce the exact moment or you'd, you'd, you'd prepare, focus on that. You need to be ready like the thief coming at any moment. And then he gives two different parables to cap this off. It's, it's such an important thought to him. He just keeps on talking about it. <clears throat> Excuse me. He talks about the ten virgins, that these are the, the uh, illustration is that they are representing the Jews. There are five wise and five foolish virgins, and they're, uh, they're all invited to the wedding feast. But the difference between them is are they ready for when the groom shows up? The groom comes unannounced, gets the bride, they travel to his home, and they have this parade festivity, which is the culture. They come to the, his house, and they're there, they're pronounced, and they have the wedding feast. And he says, well, there's, in that setting, he says, there's f ten different virgin gals, young ladies invited. Five of them had oil in their lamp, uh, extra oil, in fact, and five of them didn't have it, and so the groom waited until midnight, late at night, before he showed up. And when he comes, those who didn't have the oil, they have to go out and find oil. And by the time they come back, the parade is over. They're in the parents' home. The door is shut, the feast has begun, and they're not allowed in. He says, that's going to happen to some people. They won't be prepared. They'll miss out on the banquet on this feast because they've not been ready. Then he talks a little bit more about that <clears throat> by giving the parable of the talents. And the parable of the talents you're familiar with, it's in going into the chapter where he talks about three different fellows. The rich ruler is going to give them some of his money 
colonies. They should do something while, uh, with it while he's away. And he, he gives one, gets the uh, five, two, and then one talent. And we all know how it comes. The uh, ends up, the ruler comes back, and the first two have been faithful. They double it. The third man didn't do anything with it because he had a low view of the master. The first two are commended. They're given rewards. Uh, share in the ruling. Enter in the joy of the Lord. The third one is given condemnation. He's, his crown, or I'm sorry, his talent is taken away. He's cast into outer darkness. And the whole point is we need to be faithful. He's talking with his disciples, faithful, faithful, faithful while I'm away. Now he continues with this by having given different details. Now he jumps back into the final um, event uh, prior to the kingdom. And it's called the sheep goat judgment. So we want to pick up where he's talking about that and he's giving some of the information. In fact, we want to go down to chapter 25. The last few verses is when he gives that information where he talks about this sheep goat judgment which I had made comment here a couple weeks ago that the sheep goat judgment, when we talk about the future, there are several different judgments. The judgment that affects you and me is what's called the Bema Seat. That's going to occur in heaven after the rapture. Okay, then there's going to be the tribulation period that Jesus is telling these Jews about. You're going to live in the tribulation. At the end of it, I'm going to come back. There's going to be a regathering of the people, but then there's going to be a judgment. This judgment involves a resurrection of all the Old Testament saints and probably all the tribulation saints who have passed away during the tribulation, and they're going to be judged. Uh, that'll be their resurrection. It's going to be here on earth, and he calls it the sheep goat judgment because he's going to basically say, okay, who's going Going in. And it's including apparently the people who are also living on earth at the end of the tribulation. Some of them are going to be sheep, some are going to be declared as goats. And so that's a judgment basically of who's going into the kingdom. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so this judgment is spelled out a little bit here in verse 20, 31 where he says, When the Son of Man shall come in his glory, all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. This is on earth. And before him shall be gathered all nations. He shall separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. He shall set the sheep on the right hand, the goats on the left. Then shall the king say unto those on the right hand, the sheep, Come, you blessed of my father, you inherit the kingdom, prepare for you from the foundation of the world. I was hungry, you gave me meat. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you took me in. Naked, you clothed me. I was sick, you visited me. I was in prison, you came unto me. Then shall the righteous answer and say, Lord, when did we see you hungry and fed or thirsty and give you drink? When saw you a stranger and took you in naked or clothed you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison? And he answers, I say unto you, inasmuch as you have done it unto one of the least of my brethren, you have done it unto me. Then shall he say also unto them on the left, You depart from me, you cursed into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and the angels. I was hungry, you gave me no meat. I was thirsty, you didn't do anything. I was a stranger, you didn't take me in. Naked, you didn't clothe me. Sick in prison, you didn't visit me. Then shall they answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry, a thirst, stranger, or naked, or sick? And he did not minister. He said, Verily I say, inasmuch as you did not to one of the least of these, you did it not to me, and these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life everlasting. In particular, this is dealing with a lot of the people who have survived the tribulation. 
and he's going to be judging them. Now what we have in the text is several different tidbits of information. It's happening right after the second coming. He's taking his throne and he says, all nations shall be gathered before me. Now Daniel gives us some insight into a little bit of the chronology. Let me jump back into Daniel chapter 12. In Daniel chapter 12 he's talking about that idea of the kingdom that is coming. And he starts off in Daniel 12 about blessed are those who are going to be resurrected to go into the kingdom. <clears throat> that gives us an idea that the Old Testament saints will be resurrected at that point. They'll be judged and they'll enter into the kingdom and we'll be with all of them. Daniel chapter 12 has some interesting information. It gives us specific days. In Daniel 12 verse 12 it says there are 1290 days you know, from the certain time he's counting, he says, okay, from this moment on, there are 1290 days before we're talking about this resurrection business of the Old Testament saints. He tells us that when the daily sacrifice is taken away, from that moment, there's 1290 days until that resurrection moment or that moment of preparation for the kingdom. When is the taking away of the sacrifice that Daniel's talking about? Well, in Daniel chapter 12, remember, he's already given us information in Daniel chapter 9. In Daniel chapter 9, he says that in the last week, that last seven years, there is going to be a period where there's a treaty signed, and then in the middle of that seven years, three and a half year point, there's going to be a breaking of the treaty. Let, let's put some, some modern interpretation. Who's the treaty between? That treaty that begins the tribulation, who's it between? Israel and Antichrist. What happens at the middle point of the tribulation? He breaks the treaty. What else does he do? What's that? Okay, he's going to commit. There's a term that's used in Scripture. He's going to commit the, uh, the abomination of desolation. He is going to invade the temple proper and proclaim himself as God to be worshipped. Okay, and so that's going to be the separation, the ending of the daily sacrifices that is in that rebuilt temple. Whenever it's rebuilt before or after the rapture, we don't know. But then that's going to, that's going to begin the last three and a half years. Now scripture calls it three and a half years, a time, times, and half a time, three and a half. It also calls it in the book of Revelation 42 months. It also calls in the book of Revelation 1200 and not 1290, that's the rub. Do you remember what number it gives? 1260, 60 days, the book of Revelation. Which then, that, that causes us a little bit of concern. Did Daniel get it wrong? Did Daniel, have, did he miss, did, did the nine get upside down in his writing? No, it couldn't be that. Okay, there's specific clearly in the Hebrew, it's, it's clearly, it's 1290 days in Daniel and 1260 days in the book of Revelation. Conflict? No. Okay, how do we put this all together? What we understand then is that then he continues in Daniel and he says, 1290 days, and then he says, blessed is he that lives until the 13th, 35th day. He's expanded it. So it's not like he's stuck with one number. That's a contradiction. He uses a different number than the rest of the, of the prophecies, and then he expands upon that number. So something is happening 
after the end of the tribulation. In fact, he's giving us an, uh, clearly that from the time that Christ comes back, 1260 days, until the beginning of the kingdom, 1335 days. What do we have a difference of? Okay, 75 days. Okay, that we've got a conflict here. That it says that the start of the kingdom, there's going to be this gap of time that gives us basically 75 days between the coming of Christ and the beginning of the kingdom. Why? Why is there a gap of time? What's going to happen during those 75 days? We aren't, it's not spelled out. But let's put together what, what the events are right after the, um, right after the, coming of Christ, 1260 days. He's got to regather the Jews. There's got to be the resurrection of the Old Testament saints and get them ready to go into the kingdom as far as their rewards or whatever they're going to do. There is also this judgment called the sheep-goat judgment. There is something else that occurs that's not mentioned, but we know it has to happen. The world has to be fixed. That's a good way of putting it. It's got to be put back together again. Has the world itself been almost devastated during the tribulation? Everything's screwed up. Okay, creation is at a royal mess. The animal kingdom, everything is so... Is there time of reclamation? Is there... By the way, could God just put everything back together in a, in a thought? Yeah, so we don't know exactly how that's going to function, but we know that there are major events, and apparently part of that 75 days includes what we're talking about is this sheep-goat judgment and the renewal of the planet Earth, the resurrection of the Old Testament saints, and that is happening in that time period before the 1335th day. Now it is blessed for those who are entering into that kingdom. And so what happens is all nations are gathered during that time. Here is the question that some have. At the end of the tribulation when he does this does this judgment is he judging let me throw it out um, it's it's judgment at the, if they survived the tribulation if america is still a country during the tribulation and still a, a player it, when he says all nations are gathered does that mean all the americans are gathered and judged together at one moment are all the spanish judged and determined sheep or goats. When he says all nations, does that mean the British are all judged together, or the Assyrians, or the Egyptians, or the Russians? Is that what he means when he says all nations? That is what some commentators say. Some commentators say that this is a national judgment. The nations are, are given um, blessings or given condemnation based upon as a whole. What do they do? The idea of, okay, we're judged as a whole group. And so the, uh, the sheep at, at that time are going to be the ones who go into heaven, are going to the kingdom. The goats are going to be those who are condemned because, he says, you didn't take care of me during this time period. You didn't respond to me. So the questions that we have are, one, um, judgment of nations or judgment of individuals? Uh, again, a lot of people say it's a judgment, it's a national judgment, and so people are, are going to be judged based upon what did their whole nation do as a whole. Did America bless or curse Israel during the tribulation and all the Americans get her, get the sheep or the goat uh, determination based upon what we did as a nation. Okay. Do you think that's the possibility? I struggle with that. i got to tell you, I really struggle with that interpretation. You know why? Think it through. It's not individualistic. 
Okay? What's the problem if it's not individual judgment? Yeah. Okay, could somebody be born again but their nation was... Okay, do they end up in hell because even though they believed their nation was anti-Jewish? No, I don't think so. So when it says that, they're, that the nations are judged, instead of taking it literally to say each nation judged individually, what could it be meaning? All the people from all nations. Yeah, exactly. And, and by the way, does he, in the tribulation, does he talk a lot about nations and tongues? Do you remember how many times, three different times actually, in the book of Revelation, I saw people of all tongues, nations, kindreds, and tribes praising God. Do you remember the reading that? Say yes, because I read it last Sunday in the morning worship service, okay, as we were winding down. Okay, that it says that, does, and doesn't mean that people of all tongues, nations, that everyone in those nations are in heaven? No, it just means people from, from everywhere and every place. Now, think with this what this impact is. Think of what he could be saying right here. He is talking to what type of people? What nationality is he giving this prophecy to? Jews. And when he says all nations, now what is he telling them? It's not just the Jews going into the kingdom. It's people from, uh, yeah, would that be impacting to the crowd that's listening to him? Yeah, because they think, right. Okay, so, um, so what, we, what we have is this personal, I think it's a personal judgment, okay, from people of all nations in that sense that the entire nations, uh, you know, uh, what they did, it's obvious, but this personal judgment of people from all nations, some are allowed into heaven or into the kingdom, and some are not. Um, the other thought that, goes through, that comes to my mind is with this is the judgment is based upon their works. Okay, where he says, you, you fed me, you clothed me, you visited me. And Jesus responds, well, let's take that part first. Okay, based upon their works. Jesus is saying, you're invited into my kingdom based upon your works. Um, does that mean works will get these people into heaven? During the tribulation, does he change his standard of being allowed into the kingdom? Okay, today, what's the standard? Faith in Jesus Christ. Okay, faith in Christ. Does it change during the tribulation? No, because remember that in all the judgments he makes it a couple times, if your names are not written in the book of life, you're cast. Okay, so how does he get this idea of works being a part of this judgment? But the works aren't just rewards here. The works are a determination of going into the kingdom or not going into the kingdom. Is there another possibility? I, it, could be the, in the, it could be subtly saying that there's rewards, but is there another possibility? Well, there are some people who are saved who are really good people. They don't, they're not Jews. Okay. They, they don't do bad things. Are they going to get into heaven because they're not bad? Okay, then it's, you're, you're saying, you two are saying rewards or punishment. Is there another reason he brings up the works? Besides just rewards? 
okay, let's, let's, take, let's go back to this idea, okay, with what you're just saying, Ron. Okay, um, because the sheep wonder. The sheep are going to say, when did we ever see you this way? Right? Isn't that what the text says? Okay, they're kind of caught off guard. And he says, if you've done this to the least of my brethren. Um, maybe what we should ask this, who's he referring to about the least of the brethren? Now, here's the way it's interpreted in 2017. People will grab this passage and say, we need to be nice to everyone, okay? Especially kids, those who have um, infirmities, those who are impoverished. If we're nice, okay, keep it in its context. Who are one of the least? He is judging people of all nations based on how they treated the least of my brethren. Who would be the least of his brethren? Who during the tribulation were strangers, prisoners, hungry, ill? It could be the believers of that time and or the Jewish people of that time. Does that make sense? Because who's the persecuted people during that era? It's those, the believers, the believers, especially the Jews and any who are converted by the 144,000 Jewish witnesses. And so I think what he's talking about in here is he's not suggesting people are getting into heaven based because they were nice to the Jews or they weren't nice to the Jews during the tribulation. I don't think that's the key. But I do think it shows something. Faith without works is dead. Okay, how do we know, okay, how do we know if somebody's truly born again? By their what? By their works or by their fruits you shall... Okay, now in the tribulation, what would Jesus say? Here is a big spiritual work that is really risky and takes great faith. What would it be? Helping out the persecuted people. Right? Because you're basically helping out what, what, what are the persecuted people considered in that society? They're criminals. They're the, they're the sought-after ones. They're the ones that not only is the government after in the tribulation, but who's behind the government? Okay, Antichrist, the Satan, Satan himself, and the demonic hordes. And so basically, I think consistent with Scripture, he's saying your work's are going to show whether you had faith. Faith that all of a sudden helped you to go the extreme, to stand for what is right, to oppose what is evil, even though that meant a whole lot of difficulty for you because assisting the Christians, assisting the, the Jews born again during that time period, you put yourself at risk. And on top of that, think about that last line I have up there. People aren't going to, for the most part, people aren't going to become wealthy during this time period. During that seven years, the people who survive, what is the goal? I just said it. <laughs> It's survival. It's survival. Remember, it takes a whole day's wage just to get how much food? One big map. It's not because McDonald's is extreme. Like it's, it's just that we're in famine. So if you're helping, think what he's saying. If you are helping somebody who is hungry, what are you doing to yourself? Yeah, 
Yeah, there's great sacrifice here. This isn't, this is putting others in front of yourself. This is the ultimate of, of what he's called real believing service, loving as God would love. And so what he's got, and in particular, I think it's going to be focusing how do they respond in the tribulation to the persecuted, to the Jewish people? Do they curse them and go along with the flow, or do they turn around and say, we're opposing it? Which gives us this indication that there are people of all nations that even though there are going to be, there's going to be um, um, the implemented laws of 666, it's indicating there are going to be people who oppose this. People who will be individualistic, who will oppose the evil and they will put faith in Christ and they'll call upon him and they will risk everything, including their lives. They're going to they're they're come to the end of the tribulation. They've survived. They believe in Christ and he's going to say, here's, here's your faith proven. You're coming in and I think then what you, a couple of you said, probably the rewards, not just coming in, but some rewards based upon how they responded to it. Here's what we've got. God is not done with Israel, okay? This is an important thought that you and I, as he's closed out this sermon and given all this detail, you and I have got to keep this in mind. God is not done with Israel. We are not the new Israel. We are not the replaced Israel. We as a church, the church at large, we are not all of a sudden the special New Testament Israelites that we replace all the covenant promises, they come to us. There's, God is not done with them as a nation. He is going to revert back to dealing with them as a nation and bringing them to a point where they'll get into the kingdom. They'll be rewarded and uh, he'll deal with them as a group of people. We will be the bride. They will be the chosen nation. Let's take a second step. From the time of creation, because he talks about the kingdom that is prepared. From the time of creation, God has desired to dwell with men face-to-face, -face, in harmony, in, in a new Edenic, you know, Garden of Eden or New Eden world, uh, kingdom world. But this is God's desire to have fellowship with us. Not because he's lonely, but because he, by grace, gives us this opportunity. God never intended people to be the occupants of hell. Who was hell made for? It's very clear in this text. Don't let somebody get you messed up at work that says, well, how could a loving God send people to hell? It's not God's desire that any should perish. It, it wasn't made for, it wasn't designed for. His plan was for people to live with him. His plan from the beginning is that hell was made for Satan. The people who upset and unsettle his plan are people who refuse to listen to him. Hell is a real place, eternal punishment, eternal fire, outer darkness, gnashing of teeth. This is the second or third time that Jesus has made this statement. It's not a figmented type of an idea. This isn't just a make-believe boogeyman idea. This is a real place with real suffering. One day God will take over the planet Earth. That's very clear from this text. Praise the Lord. One day he will replace everyone in Washington, D.C., and he will rule and reign. What we do in this life will impact what we experience in the next life. That is a thought we've preached the last couple weeks. It's a fabulous thought that's very impacting. It'll be again, it's, again, it's repeated in this text. Our deeds don't get us into heaven, but our deeds show if we really believe from our hearts. 
Faith without works is dead. Let's make this final statement. How we treat God's people parallels what we think of Christ. That is true in this text. That is the clear application. Let's bring it back a little bit. Okay, by laddering it down a little bit, is there this principle that what we do to others is our reflection upon Christ? Let me, let me throw this out. When, when um, Saul... Uh, Paul, previous to salvation. When Saul is headed on the road to Damascus, he's blinded. Do you remember? He's converted. What does Jesus say to him? Saul, Saul, why? Why do you persecute? Wait a minute. He didn't persecute Jesus. He did in a in a, in a roundabout way, because who is he persecuting? The body of Christ. He, what he does to the body of Christ reflects what he thinks of Christ. And so that's true in a negative. It's true in a positive that even though these people in this time are really focused on that and judge in particular the Jews and believers, it's true of us. How we treat one another. By, by the way, let's take the principle from 1 Corinthians 6 or 1 Corinthians 8, if I stumble somebody who's a weaker brother because I insist that it doesn't bother me to, okay, whatever, my, my personal liberties, okay, whatever my personal liberty is, um, I don't drink, it doesn't bother me to go into a place where, you know, it's a restaurant and they have, they have a, uh, they serve liquor over there. And I have that liberty, Okay, I have that and I can do that and I've got somebody with me and here's Deb coming with me. We're on a date and she grew up in a home where there was an she did, alcoholism and she herself got into it and I take her there and expose her to that and it stumbles her and she trips up and starts getting involved with alcohol. He says in 1 Corinthians 8, I have not only hurt her but what have I done? I have sinned against Christ. It's very clear in the text. If we stumble a brother or sister, we sin against Christ. So what we do to one another impacts our relationship with Christ. And so we, we can't get away from that. And I know that the exact application is what's happening in the tribulation of this text, but we can ladder it down in the sense by supporting with other scriptures. This is true even in our day. How we treat one another we have to be remembering what we do to one another, we are also doing towards Jesus Christ. Very important. Now what happens is he's done with the sermon. The sermon wraps up, and what he is going to do is he's going to give us scenes that he's going to give us the information, but it's almost like I'm telling you what's going on here, I'm telling you what's going on here, and he gives us some data. Now if he is going to the Mount of Olives, or if he's passed it and head to Bethany, what happens is Judas breaks away from the group. And Judas is going to go and meet with a group who is meeting at the same time that Jesus is preaching. It is the Jewish leaders who have a secret meeting taking place where they're not supposed to, but they're meeting in a private quarters and having a meeting of the Sanhedrin that is not to take place in the high priest's quarters, but they're going to do it because they are doing the, you know, the, the old adage we talk about politics that they are working out a deal and they say in the smoke-filled rooms. 
That's what's happening in Matthew 26. In Matthew 26, as we break into this section, it came to pass when Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days is the feast of the Passover, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed to be crucified. So he's winding down and his invitation, his last words to the, to the, in this prophetic message is, I'm going to tell you what's happening right, right within the immediate few days. I've told you all about future, future, future. Now let me just give you some information. And this is the umpteenth time that he's telling them and he's giving them data about him and what's going to happen immediately. And he basically says that he's going to die soon. Fourth time in Matthew. Fourth time that Matthew records it. That he says, and most of it is in the last month, six weeks, that he says, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. And he's given them specifics. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to be tortured. Now he adds to it the comment. He says that I'm going to be betrayed. And he tells them the exact manner of his death. And he tells them not only how he's going to die and who's going to be involved, but he gives them the time frame. He says in two days, after two days, I'm going to die. It's going to be sometime during the Feast of Passover. Okay, now keep in mind what Jesus is saying when we read the next few verses about the Jewish leaders. But Jesus says it's going to happen after two days, it's going to be during Passover, that I'm going to die, and his observations are basically real simple. Okay, God has a timeline. Jesus knows the timeline. So when Jesus goes into the Garden of Gethsemane, he is fully aware of what's happening. He is, he is not going to be caught off guard. You know how... Um, we're going way back. But you know how some of those, those you know, gospel operas, Jesus Christ Superstar, and some of those other, they make it look like all of a sudden things got out of control for Jesus. That is not true. Jesus knew he was in full compliance with the Father's will. The disciples still don't get it. They still don't get it. Okay? They know that there's pressure. They know that there's a problem. There's just been all kinds of conflict earlier in the day. They've seen the, the ravenous look on the leaders as they attack Jesus. But Jesus right away said, okay, you know, I'm telling you all about this future, but I'm going to die. I've just given you the bad news that the city's going to be destroyed. Let me, let me put the icing on the cake. Okay, I'm going to die as well. And so he's telling them, he tells them about the idea that somebody... Now, if you were one of the disciples and you heard he's going to be betrayed... What would you want to do to the betrayer? In your heart, what would you want to do to somebody that you knew that would betray Jesus? You want to kill him. Judas Iscariot is an assassin. If he took him out, human thinking. If we kill the betrayer, that does what for Jesus? Yeah, yeah, we could help him out. He talks about being, and then he asks her, I'm going to be crucified. What do you know as a disciple of Jesus, one of those 12 or 11 who are with Jesus, when you heard the word, I'm going to be crucified, what comes to your mind? Are you thinking, are you thinking, ah, oh, this is a mercy killing? No, painful. What'd you say? Worst punishment possible. You, you know you know crucifixion is the ultimate form of execution that has been perfected to create pain. In fact, as a Jew, what do you know Scripture says? Do you remember? It's quoted in Galatians. Blank is the man that is hung on a tree. 
Cursed is the man that's hung on a tree. You know that it's not only torturous, but it is the worst. And it's for criminals. It's left for those who have violated the emperor, empire. And you're going to sit there and say, well, Jesus is not a rebel. I know. I've been with him. He's not like this. And so you've got all of these words. And yet what strikes me is he's saying this, but within a short time, they're arguing over which of them is going to be the greatest in the kingdom. So it's kind of going right over their head. In one ear and... Yeah, the proverbial thought. In the meantime, back at the ranch, the Jewish leaders, while Jesus is saying all this, the Jewish leaders are meeting as well with their clientele. Caiaphas with his disciples. Then assembled together the chief priests, the scribes, the elders of the people unto the palace of the high priest, the high priest called Caiaphas, and they consulted that they might do what? Okay, that they might take Jesus how? It says subtly. What do you, what do you think by that? quietly, secretly, and then do what with him? Okay, why do they want to do this in secret? Well, two things come out. Not on the feast, lest there is a... Anybody have a footnote on that one? The word is riot. That there is a riot by the people. Now, Luke adds, for they blanked the people. They feared the people. They feared the people. And so they're meeting in the palace. By the way, this is Caiaphas, is one of... The, one of um, the high priest Annas, A-N-N-A-S, he and his five sons and son-in-laws served as high priest during this time period. That's kind of odd because usually high priest was left to the oldest son and going on, how did this one family end up with five to six of them serving as high priest and dominating the office for over three decades or more? You got the high priest office, do you want to know how in the New Testament era? Guess. Money. Money. Whoever was the highest bidder, and so that the highest bidder got the got in, you know, got the office. Oh, by the way, whoever's the in the high priest, he is by essence the main guy getting the profits from the temple bazaar. Okay. Think this through. If I bid enough money, I get in charge and I get all the profits from the Temple Bazaar, which means I get more money, which means I can bid as a brother, as a son-in-law, and we can keep this thing going and keep it within the family, which they did um, for an extended period of time. This is the same guy, Caiaphas, who in John 11, right after Lazarus was raised from the dead, they met in Jerusalem and Caiaphas stood up and said, it is better that one should die than the whole nation be destroyed. Okay, so he's already determined in his mind, got to get rid of Jesus. Now what they're trying to determine, how to do it. How to do it. Now, their determination is real simple. Their determination that they're meeting, and by the way, this is an Ill illegal meeting, but they're going to do it anyway, okay? Because once in a great while in history, politicians do secret deals that are illegal. Okay, yeah, yeah. Can you imagine that happening? Aren't we, aren't we glad that it doesn't happen in America? Okay, that uh, there isn't this back room stuff. They, what, what he says is, you know, what they're saying is that we're afraid, but we're going to wait until, and this is interesting, we're going to wait until after Passover. Now, what did Jesus just say? Meantime, back at the Mount of Olives, what did Jesus say? I'm going to die during Passover. They're saying, nope, 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 we're waiting until, now again, they don't know what he's saying, but they have a time frame. 
So whose time frame is going to win out? God's got to win out. Why does Jesus have to die during Passover? He's the sacrificial lamb. To fulfill prophecy, it's got to happen. So something has to manipulate and maneuver to move up the timetable for these guys. It's Judas. The something or the someone is Judas. The passage goes on, and it's going to tell us a little bit about Judas in verse 14. Then one of the twelve, called Judas Iscariot, went over to the, high pri to the chief priest and said, What will you give me that I will deliver him into your hands? And they covenanted with him for 30 pieces of silver. And from that time he sought opportunity to betray Jesus. Now, in between, I've jumped a paragraph. Because in a lot of your scriptures, well, all of ours in Matthew, there's an inserted story. The story is of Mary coming, Mary of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus fame. Mary comes and anoints his feet. Is this the chronological moment that it occurred? No. John chapter um, 12 makes it very clear that it happened earlier on that Saturday before. But why does Matthew and Mark stick it in here? Well, thematically. Okay, you're going to get a contrast between Mary and Judas. And what happens during the meal that, I'm sorry, what happens during the foot washing to Judas? Do you remember? He gets, he gets ticked. Okay, why? Because at the foot washing, it says the disciples said, why was this waste made? It could have been sold and given to the... Now, one of the Gospels says the disciples. Okay? The other clarifies who the disciple is that said it. It is who? Judas and John adds... And Judas was a thief, okay? So at the time, they didn't know that. But what we find out is that during that foot washing, Judas is rebuked by Jesus because Jesus basically says, let her alone. What she has done is good. You will have the blank with you always, the poor with you always, but you don't have me. Judas has been openly rebuked by Jesus, at that moment. Judas has found out he's not making money off this deal. That Jesus is basically emptying the treasury that he's in charge of, that he's stealing. So it makes sense to me why some of them might put the story here. Okay, it doesn't mean it's chronologically occurs this same night, but what it does is it gives you an idea that Matthew says, oh, by the way, while those guys were meeting, Judas goes there. Oh, wait a minute. Let me explain something why Judas may have gone to meet with them. And he puts the story in there. Does that make sense? It gives you, it gives you personal, uh, it gives you motive. Okay, it gives motive why Judas is doing what he did. But, the, but John clearly has said it's happened several days earlier. It happened on that Saturday night uh, before the uh, uh, Sunday is Palm Sunday. And so it's not a conflict. It's just that the writers are inserting things to help you, the reader, to understand why they happened. And so they didn't keep it in chronological order. They gave you a thematic order. And so it gives us that type of an idea. Now Judas goes and meets with these Jewish leaders. And when Judas meets with them, here is what I think is really interesting to catch. Is they didn't seek him out. He seeks them out. I think that's critical for you and I to observe. He is the one that goes to them and says, what can I do to help you out? Okay, so what we've got is we've got Judas not being forced. 
Let's make sure we understand this, okay? Judas is not a victim of, of circumstances. Let's get rid of that goofy thought that floats through modern-day America's Christian circles. Judas initiated this. Judas is seeking this out. He is aggressively going and conniving in order to do it. Now, the big question is, why? Why is he so vehemently against Jesus after spending a year and a half following him? Hmm. Possibilities? What's that? He's, he's angry with Jesus because he got rebuked. Anything else? We've already alluded to a couple of them. He's not making money, and he's all about making money. Okay, so this is proving unprofitable for him. In fact, when he hears the words, think of this if you were Judas. Hear how unprofitable it just became in Matthew 26, verse 1. In Matthew 20, is it verse 1? Verse 2. How unprofitable did his plans just become? Jesus just told him, I'm going to die. I'm going to die in two days. Okay. Okay, well, there goes my, what would we say? My golden goose? What, what's the, yeah, yeah. My, uh, that, that's the word I'm looking for. There goes my gravy train. Yeah, there it is. Okay. So I better make, you're, think, think like an unsaved, greedy person. I better make the best of a bad situation. I'm not going to get the most out of it like I thought I could, but I might as well get all I can get out of it, get something out of it. So he's going to do it. We also know Matthew, or Luke 22 gives us this insight, says Satan entered into him. It is a spiritual warfare. We understand that. He's, you know, we've already alluded to those other things that he's been rebuked. He's already been a thief already. So this isn't something new for him. He's been stealing all along. He agrees to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, which has some, some significance according to Zechariah. So he's very disenchanted. I'm going to go move forward. I'm going to betray. So putting it all together, he goes and he finds out. This is the point that I want us to catch because we are, we are fed this line in American churches that poor Judas had no choice. That is totally opposite of the account. Okay? Judas, Judas is, is responsible for his actions. Okay. Now, on top of that, this is, we'll close with this. This is very important. Okay. Judas agrees to do this. He agrees, according to Luke 22, to find an opportunity to make it convenient to betray Jesus. Now, remember, the Sadducees, the Pharisees, they're concerned about not creating a, a scene. What word did I say that, that, that they, the riot. They want to do this subtly. They want to do it quietly. They were going to put it off, but now the time has changed because Judas has provided an opportunity that has to take place quicker. But they're still concerned that we do this in a way that it doesn't cause an uproar in the city. Okay, Judas, can we find out when we can catch him? Catch him. Now, look at the phrase. In the absence of the multitude. So we got to catch Jesus at a secret moment. Okay, Judas, you let us know when he's going to be alone, when he is vulnerable, when the crowds aren't there, because if we arrest him in front of the crowds, 
yeah, we've got a big problem. We might have a revolt on our hands. Judas agreed to that, so it changed the timetable. His agreement, now this is, this is, we don't have this stated in the scripture, this is historical information from Rome. In Roman time, you could not, they had a justice system that was supposed to be fair. You could not arrest somebody without an official complaint or indictment that was filed against somebody, especially somebody of public status. And so before they could carry this out, they had to have somebody to agree to turn state's evidence against Jesus. Okay, think this through. If that is true, and historically it is true, that they had to have people that would turn evidence against, what did Judas agree to do against Jesus? Not only to turn him over, but to testify against Jesus in court. Has he made some real big decisions here? Yeah, yeah. So if this is all true, again, this is historical documentation. We can't say, okay, Scripture tells us this, okay, but we know this. We know that he may have signed an agreement. He may have agreed verbally that he is going to be the testimony. Now, that would make sense because when they come to court, what type of witnesses do they end up having? Dummies? Because remember, what, what do they end up for witnesses? What's the problem? The, yeah, the, the witnesses don't agree. They don't have the witnesses. They don't have their story together. You remember, and the witnesses are basically bogus. Why, what motivated them to say, let's take this to court? Hatred, but they also had the key witness. They had the really good witness who could turn state's evidence. But then he screwed up their plans because what does he do before the court starts? He goes and kills himself. Okay, so there's more to this that Judas now is looking for a convenient moment to betray Jesus. Here's a question I have. Judas, and we'll stop here. Judas is with the 12. Jesus is preaching. They go to the Mount of, uh, Mount of Olives, and then they stay there for the night, or they head back to Bethany. But Judas doesn't go with them, or Judas leaves them in the middle of the night. It's dark. Judas says, I got to go somewhere. Why didn't anybody question or suspect Judas was up to no good? There's a reason. Okay. There, there's even, a, yeah, the, he had the bag. Remember, they did. There's another reason. It has to do with Judas's origins. Okay, we'll stop there. Okay, we'll pick up in, in a couple weeks.